Hey there, I'm Trisha Rose Burt, and I want to ask you a question. What creative work are you called to do but are too afraid to try? Are you an IT but dream of doing stand-up? A PR exec who longs to write a screenplay? Did the pandemic change your priorities and you want to leave your fully funded PhD MD program and go to New Mexico and paint? Or maybe you're like I was in my early career, trapped in a lucrative but soul-crushing corporate job when what I really wanted to do was tell stories on stage. In this podcast, we'll hear from artists who took an unexpected leap and found the courage to answer their creative call so we can inspire you to answer yours. Because this is no time to be timid. Welcome to the show. Today we're going to explore the eighth principle in the No Time to Be Timid manifesto, failure is your friend. And while I've been on this journey long enough to know it's all part of the process, sometimes the process doesn't feel that good. Which is why we look for inspiration in artists who've overcome setbacks and persevered. I just heard an amazing story about a guitarist who opened for the Monkees. You know, the, the pop band with the TV show back in the late 1960s? The monkeys, and people say we monkey around. But we're too busy singing to put anybody down. This guitarist had a following in the UK, but not in the US. And his promoters thought if he opened for the Monkees, who were wildly popular at the time, it would bring him some good exposure. So the first night the guitarist opens for the band, about five minutes into his set, the crowd starts booing. And they keep booing. And they're screaming for Davy Jones, the lead singer of the Monkees. It happens the next night, and the next. Every town they go to for eight nights, the guitarist gets booed. So he quits the tour, but he keeps making his music. And thank goodness, because the guitarist was Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix. What would the world be like if Jimi Hendrix, guitar god, had let fans of the Monkees, a pop band that lasted about two years, convince him that he was a failure? And I've read about Catherine Stockett, who wrote the book, The Help. Over the years, she sent letters to more than 60 agents asking them for representation. And all 60 agents said no to her. And with each rejection, she worked harder on her book. Finally, the 61st agent said yes. And in three weeks, she had a book and a movie deal. Failure was definitely her friend. This past September, I attended a failabration, an event hosted by a wonderful artist named Brad Montague. And he invited folks to get on stage to tell their tales of failure, to celebrate when things went sideways or backwards or just blew up. It was just a hoot, and everyone in the audience could relate with every single storyteller. And after each story, Brad instructed us to say to the storyteller, we see you, we thank you, We love you. Something we should say to ourselves in the mirror every day, particularly when we've hit a creative bump in the road. Our guest today is Hillary Graham, who's overcome all kinds of obstacles in her writing career. 
but her perseverance has landed her in Hollywood, writing for some of the top shows, including Bones and Orange is the New Black, and she was the showrunner for Social Distance, a recent Netflix series. She joins us from her home in Los Angeles. Hey, Hillary, it's so good to have you here. It's very nice to be here. I want to ask you the question that I ask most of my guests to begin. What was your first act of creative courage? I think anytime you put something out in the world, it's an act of courage. Or say, I put a poem in my high school literary magazine, which I did, or (laughs) did like Poetry Slam in my 20s in Boston, or, you know, I made my first feature film when I was 23. That was a very big act of courage. I mean, that was the first real big one. Of course, I'd made, you know, I majored in film. So I made student films. And anytime you're putting something out for people to have opinions about, (laughs) and not just opinions, to see something, you know, it's a very vulnerable position often for an artist to put their work in the world. So my feature film premiered at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. What was the name of the film? Uh, It was called Life's Too Good. And it was semi-autobiographical. And I made it at the very knowing and wise age of 23. So it was perfect. (laughs) No notes. Uh, No, I mean, it was not it was not great. (laughs) The strength I think people found from that was that it was in the writing, even though the writing is not super great either. Um, I think that was like the strongest part. So 400 people in that theater seeing that movie and feeling very exposed, um, for sure. (laughs) But you had to have a sense of accomplishment attached to it as well. Yeah, there was a great sense of accomplishment for sure. And yeah, it was really scary. I mean, it's still really scary, right? It's still really scary when you put something in the world And then you wait for people to receive this thing that you've cared about for so long, put so much of your, you know, heart and soul and often money into, definitely in the case of this first indie feature. And then people are just like, hated it, you know, or, you know, whatever they say. I mean, there were also many fans, but I remember getting uh, for that film a bad review in the Boston Globe that just felt humiliating. That was my hometown newspaper. I mean, the Boston Phoenix, there was a great review, but the Globe is the Globe. Everyone knows the Boston Globe. And yeah, and just being very young and not knowing how to process that. This is what this episode is all about, is that failure is your friend. I know. (laughs) Obviously, you have done quite well for yourself, you know, since that experience, however many years ago. But you could have said, oh, well, I'm done. These people didn't like it. I'm now not going to do this anymore. And the trick is going, okay, I'm just going to do it again. I'm going to do some more. How do you handle perceived failure? I mean, I think in some ways I handle it very differently now. Um, You know, now I tend to not look at things in black and white terms. Back then, I think it was, you know, oh my God, one person said one bad thing, so I'm a failure, or it didn't get into Sundance, so I'm a failure. You could argue in many objective ways that my first feature film was not a great success. I mean, it was a great success in that I had the chutzpah to do it, you know, um, and then that I followed through and actually did it. And um, there are some beautiful moments in it. And it was an incredible learning experience. I mean, it got into festivals, right? And it got some nice reviews. It's just not the important festivals, not the important ones. And for me, it was such a formative experience because I think success is often measured against expectation. And 
at the time, I did I handle failure super well? No, there was a lot of like feeling bad about myself and self-flagellation. And it took a while for me to sort of lick my wounds and say, I'm going to do this again. And I think when I did it again, which was so this film I shot when I was 23 and it came out when I was 24, something like that. And then the next one, I was 27 and 28. So it didn't take me that long to say, all right, I'm going to do it again. And it was, I think, still at that time coming from this energy, like I'll show them. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. did I or didn't I? I mean, the second one had like a little more success. It was very different. The first one was like a conventional narrative feature. The second was, if I may say so, a little ahead of its time and very very flawed at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I did this whole thing hybrid of documentary and fiction and was like a personal narrative documentary, but with fictionalized elements. So I was sort of following, you know, the formula of like a Ross McElwee or like, you know, Rob Moss or any of those like Harvard, you know, personal narrative documentary guys. But then I was adding my own like style and flavor to it. And um, yeah, I mean, that one had more like that one sold to WGBH and like a lot more people got to see it. And again, some nice festivals, some nice reviews, but not the important festivals, not the important reviews. And after that, you know, just, well, maybe I'll just give up. So for me, failure has meant I learned something along the way. I, I have an idea that I'm like, oh, this is the way to do it. I make a big swing. And then I do the thing. And then I see how it's received. But Suffice it to say that all of the disappointment and heartache of these experiences, there was also pride. There was also a tremendous amount of learning. And I was able to be aware of it at the time. It may have temporarily made me sort of have a a little tantrum of like, I'm quitting this business and never doing it again, you know, which nobody cared. Like that was just to myself. (laughs) But um, (laughs) yeah, I think once I got over that, that pain the work was always still there. And even when I moved to New Hampshire, I mean, this is several years before I met you, but I met my husband around the time that my second feature was coming out. And, and then I was like, oh yeah, I don't need to do this anymore. I don't need to spend all this time and energy just to have these movies not make me wildly successful. So screw it. Like, uh, let's just buy a beautiful house in the country and just be like people in love that live a happy life. And that worked for a little while. And then I, we got married and had our son. I was a stay at home mom for a phase of his early life. And I started noticing that during his nap time, I would start writing and like, I could tell myself like, this hurts too much. I can't put myself up for this kind of failure, but the weeds grow up in the cracks in the sidewalk. Like there was nothing I could do. You are one of the hardest working artists I know. I mean, it is remarkable. And I have watched you go through, you know, several creative projects that were successful on one hand, but didn't hit the success that you wanted on the other hand. Yeah, yeah. And there was an interview that you had in Backstage right when you came out with Social Distance about your writing process. But you have a terrific quote in it. You say, I don't believe in writer's block. I believe in sitting down, writing something shitty, and then working on it till it gets better. (laughs) I think it enables me to both get a lot done and not be so hard on myself. I spent the first 10 to 20 years of my career being very hard on myself and not having as much success. When I learned to have more compassion for myself and be like, this wasn't a good writing day. Oh, well, there's always tomorrow. Things just opened up. 
I want you to talk a little bit about that idea of being compassionate to yourself and how that actually pays off in the work later on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that might be the biggest takeaway from those early quote unquote failures in the way that like the world defines if a project succeeds or fails, which is like box office or, you know, the world will define those as failures. And I guess part of me does, but like, I don't frame it like that anymore. I truly don't. I don't know that there's a lot of value in that because it's as dangerous to frame your success like that, right? Because you can read one review about yourself and be like, oh my God, I'm the biggest genius in the world. Mm-hmm. And then you can read another review that's like, I'm the biggest idiot in the world. And neither of those are true, right? You have to have compassion for yourself. You have to be able to have some discipline with your work and have a goal. Compassion doesn't mean anything goes and I'm just going to write something that isn't working. I mean, you have to know your craft and study your craft. There's this very romantic notion that we see in movies sometimes that a writer sort of sits down in like a surly mood or like with a bottle of booze (laughs) or something and just like types something out and then like rips the sheet out. I remember from watching TV growing up that Stephen Jay Canal, like he's truly doing that. Like that's the... (laughs) you know, his title card for all of his very successful 70s and 80s shows and the piece of paper goes flying. It's like done. It just doesn't work that way. But most of the time, it's just revising and rewriting. How are you kind to yourself in the process? I don't know if this is kindness. I'm going to think about that. But, you know, one thing that I did not know at all in my 20s was self-care or my hard work ethic was sort of a little self-punishing. But typically I'm a pretty hard worker and I have a lot of discipline. But I also know if I'm stuck with something, then it's time to take a walk or a bike ride. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I figured that out um, in New Hampshire when I was in my 30s that some of my best work came from walking away and just giving my mind space to figure it out. And it still works that way for me. Um, I think for most people, and you don't have to bike or hike, you could, there are other ways to do that. But for me, that's how it works. The answer isn't always right, but you're not going to sort of force it into being. But yes, some days I'm not going to write beautifully and some maybe even for the whole week. But like, I, I think there's value in allowing yourself to not be perfect because it's very rare that we are perfect, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, there's just value in in giving yourself permission to keep moving forward and then come back. We'll get back to the second half of our conversation in a moment, but right now I want to tell you about our sponsor, Interabang Books a Dallas-based independent bookstore with a terrific online collection. At Interabang, their dedicated staff of book enthusiasts will guide you on your search for knowledge and the excitement of discovery. Shop their curated collection online at interabangbooks.com. That's Interabang, I-N-T-E-R-A-B-A-N-G, books.com. Stay with us for the end of the episode to receive a special online offer. Is there one particular experience in your life that you thought seemed like a big setback at the time, 
but was actually rocket fuel for something else. I think my first feature film is an example of that, but I'm going to tell another example because this is failure right before my Hollywood career started. Um, And you were involved in it because you were reading drafts of this. So the John Oliver show, which is wildly successful, wildly funny show on HBO, uh, weekly comedic look at the news, but sometimes depressing comedic look at the news. So it hadn't started yet. And they were looking for writers. And my agent at the time is like, listen, I know you want to move to LA, although this show was in New York. He's like, I know you want to get on a staff in a writer's room. And I never written for that kind of show before. You know, I was writing sample scripts that were dramas or dramedies or comedies, but they were, you know, narrative stories. I wasn't writing that type of writing. And there's some people that right off the bat, they're like, I want to write for late night. And that was not me. Um, and I hadn't had experience in that, but I was open So my agent said, have you ever written a comedy packet, which is what they call it? And I was like, no, what is a comedy? And I literally Googled (laughs) comedy packet. And he's like, do you want to give it a shot? I was like, yeah, I do. At this point, I was in the Writers Guild and I was like flying out to LA and like selling scripts and like kind of making a living as a writer writing, you know, TV movies and movie movies, but wasn't big money. And it, it, it was one choice that I could have had if, had I chosen to stay in New Hampshire. But I was like, no, 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 I want to give this a shot. So I googled how to, you know, what they're looking for. And I wrote a comedy packet in sh- a short amount of time. And they're like, oh, we love it. So now the next assignment next week, you're going to get 40, we're going to send you a thing. And then you're going to have 48 hours to do it because the John Oliver people want to know that you can write um, quickly and take in current news events. And I did. And then they're like, okay, so now you're coming to New York to meet John Oliver. And I was like, oh my God, this is happening. You know, I was meeting Tim Carvel, who's a showrunner and John Oliver and an HBO executive. That's like a, a big meeting. And I was so nervous. And, um, Long story short, I did not get the job. I cried for like three days. I was so close. This was my only chance. And blah, 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 blah. You know, and I had this whole narrative of like why I would never get another opportunity. And then cut to like six months later, I came out to LA to do some rounds of staffing and I got the offer to write on Bones, um, which is was my first job in a writer's room. You know, I wasn't meant to write a news you know, a news comedy show, first of all, not, it's not what I was aspiring to, right? Um, I was aspiring to write stories about human beings like drama. Yeah, dramedies. And so realizing that that experience, which felt like such a failure just opened up the door to the thing that was more right for me. I want to go back to this one thing that you said, because I can totally relate to it. I cried for three days and thought, I will never have another chance. I will never have an opportunity. You yeah. Know, that place where we go, if it's so black and white, this is it. Yeah. The, you know, the train left, I'm and I'm. everyone's on it except for me. Yeah. I thought you were going to go out to L.A., even before you had the job with Bones. But we were planning anyway. I was finally like, I I had to do it. I mean, I was already entering a writer's room like 15 years later than most people who enter writer's rooms, at least. Let's just stop for a second and back up and say, that's amazing. Knowing that you're, you're going to a writer's room 10, 15 years later than most people, you are ignoring whatever odds there are against you. I mean, you're just not listening to it. Like you're not no. thinking, you're not putting the, this is going to fail in your 
in your forecast. It's like, I am doing this regardless. Well, I mean, you can't listen to anyone. That's the number one rule of Hollywood. You just have to listen to yourself. I mean- Of being an artist, actually. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, of course, if you keep pushing something along that is not working, I think you also have to be able to pivot. And that's just, you have to be able to be honest with yourself. And that's harder. You have to be able to know when to let a project go. So the John Oliver thing, it was so hard for me at the time because it felt like it was my only shot. And that was not good thinking. Even though I had had therapy and grown up in the time from like my feature films in my 20s, like that black and white thinking, it just never serves you. Of course, it wasn't the only shot. And the thing that changed my attitude when I came, I talked to a friend who's a very successful um, public television executive. And she said to me, she's like, don't go into this Bones interview thinking that like I either get this job or I never get a job. Just be a little lighter with it. And I did. And I went into it. And so it wasn't so fraught. Like I went to the John Oliver thing, like struggling over what I was going to wear. Like they weren't going to be like, oh, she has a striped shirt on. She's hired, you know, or whatever it was. Like it didn't, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Like I was just so far up my, like in my own head and like, it's this or like, it's now or never. And that's just not true because we all miss opportunities all the time. It's part of what we do. It is baked into what we do. Um, Failure every single day when you're when you're working in this business, right? You have a pitch in the writer's room that everyone loves and you think is great. And then something changes and it moves on. And like the thing that everyone's like, you were such a genius or everyone laughed at your joke or like whatever. And then you get on a different track and like that becomes irrelevant. It's just gone. You cannot be so precious. You just can't like, there's no room for it. And I think people, well, there's room for it. And I think a lot of people are precious about a joke or an opportunity, but it just doesn't serve you because then you're just constantly dealing with that rejection. Whereas if you detach a little and sort of look at the long game, there are times when more things hit and there are times when things don't, you know, there are times when everything you do, you're having a great run and everything you pitch people want to buy. And there are times when that doesn't happen. That's just how it goes for everybody. I can't take it personally. Mm -mm. All I can do is do as good of the work as I can And if all of those other things line up, and there's a lot of other things that have to line up, because we know we've all made fantastic work and it was either ahead of its time or just a moment too late or was Mm -hmm. the, you know, whatever it is. But I've learned, and I think you have too, nothing is wasted because you Mm -hmm. just build on whatever it was and it makes you smarter for the next thing. It just makes you smarter for the next project. Absolutely it does. I don't think there was anything wrong with me testing my breadth as a writer to write a comedy packet. And I'm looking back, I'm really proud. I got so close. I had never written a comedy packet. I had never (laughs) defined myself as a straight up comedy person. Like I did that and I got to some of the funniest people on the planet. That is enormous success, right? That's how I look at that experience. Now you have written a young adult novel. I've seen you perform on stage at the Moth. You have written, you know, film screenplays. You have television shows, you know, this comedy pack. I mean, you just write all the time. <laughs> and, and you and I have talked about, though, how sometimes we spend time on other projects and sort of not pay attention to what we really wanted. Like you've always really wanted to be a television writer. And you kind of took some scenic routes a couple 
times? Well, I didn't realize actually I wanted to be a TV writer um, until later in life. I mean, I didn't even know I wanted to be a writer until I was in my late 30s. I I went to film school and thought I wanted to be a director. And in my late 30s had this opportunity where I was like, oh my God, it was really the only epiphany I've ever had in my life. And this but was, on, was this, on the lot, right? This was Yes. On, okay. Yes. Where I, I was like, directing makes me stressed and I, writing brings me joy. And then it was just very clear that I could look back on my life, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. but I was like, oh, yeah, of course you're a writer dummy. Like I mentioned, the high school literary magazine, I was the editor in chief, like started doing slam poetry in my 20s in Boston. Like I was always writing, writing, writing and never defined myself as a writer. So it was nice to have that clarity. And then once I did to just embrace it. I mean, let's just be clear here on that yeah. experience on On the Lot, what, there were 12,000 people who applied yeah. and you made it yeah. to the top 10. And, you know, which is crazy, but that nudge of saying, not director, you're a writer, you know, that's really important. If we're not listening, life is putting us on the track that we need to be put on. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I just wasn't listening to myself. I didn't have those skills to know how to do that. Um, You know, I look back and I think, why didn't anyone tell me? And then there's also the thought, maybe they did. I see how, like the advice I'll give to my son who's 18, you know, I've tried to, first of all, I tried to get him to notice what lights him up. Right. And nobody, I don't think people were trying to get me to notice, but then maybe they were. And I was like, I'm not listening to you because I'm, you know, 17 or 27, like whatever I, you know, I feel like that that is a possibility and I'll never really know. So I just had my journey. We're not one thing, right? We're not, we don't like come into the world. Like I was put on this earth to do this one thing. I think some people are, I guess, but I think that's incredibly rare. And so even like my, you know, first big success, which was like moving to LA, being able to like walk into a writer's room and have a paid job writing for TV was like, oh my God, I've made it. And Bones, listen, I love Bones and I love everyone who worked on Bones. Was it my favorite show? No, it wasn't like the show that makes my heart sing, which is, you know, different than when I got the call that I was meeting on Orange is the New Black. And this is just the meeting. I was so excited to be meeting uh, with Genji that, uh, my son, we were on our way to a soccer tournament. He thought I got the job and like told all his little friends at oh. school. And, and I was like, oh, no, no. I just got that excited to be in a room with Genji, you know. And then, of course, I got the job. And yeah, that experience checked a lot of boxes for me because it was a show that I admired and like had something to say in the world and, you know, just felt like a better match for the type of stuff that I wanted to write and my voice. So, but, you know, not everyone has that all the time in their career, right? Well, right. I mean, there's seasons to things and sometimes all everything lines up and we're in exactly the place we want to be. But you would have never made it to that room without the 20 years of things that worked, things that didn't work. Navigating that and just not giving up has just paid off for you. It's really just not giving up, I think, right? When you get knocked down, standing back up. And you know, working to get better at what you do and learning from people around you. I have this quote that you wrote. I I think also this is from the backstage article and you have, I have a lot of crazy ideas, 
Sometimes they're ridiculous <laughs> and sometimes they become a TV show. <laughs> you know, and yeah. inherent in that is failure. Like they might work, yes. they may not work. You know, so yeah. you're embracing that idea of being curious and being adventurous and just mm-hmm. moving forward. What's scaring you right now? And you finding yourself having to get some courage and just put it out there. I don't think what I'm doing now takes a lot of courage. Um, it just takes energy. I have a lot of development, like a lot of different projects that I'm pitching um, or about to pitch or a pilot I'm going to be writing soon with another writer. Um, You know, I'm not scared of any of it. Uh, I'm not scared of failure. Not all of these projects will succeed. The ones I'm about to pitch and maybe none of them will being hopeful, but not knowing which one of these things is going to happen, you know, and I feel very lucky that the stuff that I'm developing all feels like it really checks a box for me mm-hmm. um, creatively, that I'm not doing anything, you know, exclusively for the paycheck um, at this point. Not that there's anything wrong with that, because I think that happens sometimes too. But um, yeah, that, you know, the stuff that I'm attached to as a writer or, you know, creator, showrunner is stuff that is appealing to me. But the executives at these places control that. So it's just realizing how much of it is out of my control. Well, it also sounds like you're building, again, failure in quotes into the process. It's part of the process, no matter where you are in this ecosystem, right? For me, it's just having enthusiasm. Like I, if I ever stop having enthusiasm about creating a pitch for something, then that will be a sign to take a break or that this isn't the project for me. You know, and this is gig work right now. I have, I have a bunch of projects that I'm working on, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not pushing myself. Um, I'm just doing what I need to do um, because I just was feeling a little burnt out and just knowing when to step back, when to say, okay, I'm not gonna, I don't know. I, I just have to let, (laughs) just let things be you know, just finding some ease in all of it as opposed to like self-flagellation. We're going back to that compassion. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's very interesting. What used to drive you was self-flagellation. And now (laughs) what seems to drive you is enthusiasm, like wanting to make the work. Yeah, for sure. That's a very different motivating factor. So... Hey, Hillary, I really appreciate you joining us. I know even though you're easing back a little bit right now, I know you still have a full plate. So it's No, it's been uh, my pleasure to be here. And I love talking about failure. learned to make friends with failure, and it's paid off for her. And now that you've heard her story, here's some questions that you may want to consider. Can you think of a failure in your life that was actually rocket fuel for your work? Do you make room for failure in your creative process? And how do you treat yourself with compassion? To see what projects Hillary will be working on next, follow her on Instagram at Hillary Graham. If you haven't had a chance to download the No Time to Be Timid manifesto yet, make sure to visit my website, trisharosebert.com. And while you're there, please reach out and give us some feedback about the show. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And if you feel like this is no time to be timid in your own life, then maybe I can help you with that. 
In my private coaching practice, I help my clients to tell and live better stories. Some of them are artists and creatives who want to express themselves in a new medium. Others are leaders who want to motivate groups to take action. And many of them are business professionals who want to better communicate with their customers and employees. You can reach out to me at TrishaRoseBurt.com. And make sure to follow me on Instagram at TrishaRoseBurt. Our friends at Interabang Books are offering a 10% discount on books we recommend on the show so you can stock your creative library. This episode's book recommendation is Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic, a terrific book about living a creative life without fear. Go to interabangbooks.com and receive a 10% discount when you use promo code NOTTIMID. Again, that's interabangbooks.com, promo code NOTTIMID. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us for Episode 9, There is Courage in Community. We'll be talking with comedians Ophira Eisenberg and Bethany Van Delft, two very funny women who came to comedy later in life. Make sure to tune in. And remember, this is no time to be timid. No Time to Be Timid is written and produced by me, Trisha Rose Burt. Our executive producer is Mia Ravagno. And our sound engineer is Adam Arnone of Echo Finch. If you like what you hear, please spread the word, subscribe to the show, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. No Time to Be Timid is a presentation of I Will Be Good Productions. <laughs>